This episode is supported by IRL, an original podcast from Mozilla, made for people who are into or build AI and people who develop tech policies. Listen to Mozilla IRL wherever you listen to your podcast. Welcome to the Expansive Podcast, where we explore the frontiers of personal growth, business innovation, and technology. We believe that growth and progress come from expanding our minds, exploring new possibilities, and embracing change. Welcome to a very exciting podcast this week. We have a very good friend of mine, David Burkus, all the way from the US, coming in and telling us a whole bunch of wisdom about his expertise. But before we bring him in, I'm always joined by my ever elegant and badly lighted camera, <laughs> Eric. Camera is looking terrible today. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. My camera is looking terrible. I was just trying to push that shade onto Eric. What's happening, Eric? You, you project your insecurities onto me all the time. You know? <laughs> this yes. is just me fending off yes. John's insecurity. But apart from that, yes, yes, yes. Uh, dude, I'm doing, I'm doing super well. Uh, very excited to have David on today to talk about his new book, uh, which is uh, always, you know, as authors, we can appreciate the effort that goes into it. And we always want to celebrate people's successes with them, uh, especially when a new book comes out. So that's going to be good. Right. Good. Yeah. And yeah, overall, good. just feeling like way, way better in yourself. Well done. Yes. Uh, very good. Very good. Um, so very quickly about David, I, uh, I spoke in Lithuania. Um, it was the first event post COVID that we went into a live event and got invited to go all the way to Lithuania. And I'm sitting in the airport and I see this guy who's got a lot to say, speaking to everybody. I was trying to choose the best words. I mean, David and I become friends now, so we can do that. And I'm listening to him and I'm, I'm not engaging. I'm just listening and he's got a lot to say. And, and we slowly started to get along and, and we just built such a great friendship. And he's got such a very clear way about speaking about things that I often don't agree with. But after speaking to him, I see a very clear, pragmatic approach to different perspectives. And, and David's really been that for me. And then we, our friendship kind of became online and we kind of left it. And a couple of year, months later, he messages me and says, I'm going to Saudi. Have you heard of this I don't know, brand called Misk? I'm like, I'm also going to be speaking at Misk. He's like, no way, me too. And so a couple of months later, here we are in Saudi Arabia. And really, that was really fantastic. We spent uh, two days together. I opened the conference. David finished the conference. And what that actually means in speaker terms is that I was the hero for two days and David was invisible and David became my photographer. And so everywhere we went, David was my assistant photographer and only became famous at the last bit of the conference. And let me tell you something. And my respect for David tripled because the conference was two days long. It was long. There was a gazillion speakers. David was the closing speaker and he got that crowd so fine tuned. His stories were so great. And my respect really doubled for him then. And I'm so, so happy to have David with us today. So welcome, David. Oh, thank you so much for uh, for having me. I, I was hoping you would tell that, right? Because you, 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 you're you so humble, John, in that what I really was, even though our first impressions was just the loud American at the airport lounge on the, on the way to Lithuania. <laughs> uh, what I really have been every time we're in person is your photographer. Um, that's usually what happens. Even, even, at the, uh, even at the conference in Europe, by the way, it was, hey, David, oh, you did great. John, you did great. Hey, David, could you take a picture with me and John? That's consistently what I was being asked to do over and over again. I'm, I'm quite used to it. I think I went I went eyeglasses shopping after the South uh, event. Thought thought, was maybe, that. maybe that's it. Maybe I need to be a bit more stylish. Maybe. Right. I, I don't know. I don't right. know. Right. Well, it's great to have you here. You've just brought a new book out and we want to help you spread the word about your book uh, with our audience. Uh, we have a good number of people around the Middle East, uh, South Africa, even in the States and Europe. So we're hoping that we're going to get your book pushed up a lot more. And uh, it's called The Best Team Ever, which is such a great title and uh, I think very much in line with what's going on in the world. And I'll start off with Eric moving into the question. So over to you, Eric. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the, the best place always to start is just for David to give us a bit of a, a very brief sort of highlight reel of how you got to where you are today, what has been your journey. Also, selfishly, um, 
what has your journey been like as a speaker? So maybe in tandem, you know? Yeah. So, um, I mean, how far back do you want to go? <laughs> right. Um, uh, 20, 2022. 2022. <laughs> okay. Well, that's great. Well, uh, in that case, the story begins when I already started writing this book. No. Um, I mean, if we go back to like uh, primary school and, and getting ready for to study at university, I was one of those nerdy kids who wanted to be a writer, right? So I was a newspaper and literary magazine and doing all of that sort of stuff, going to like the little writers' conferences, etc. Actually, one of my life's regrets is I went to a writers' conference and the keynote speaker was Dan Brown before he wrote Angels and Demons, and I, I have a signed copy of one of his first books, but I didn't care enough to keep it. And then he got super famous. I'm like, darn, I really <laughs> could have cashed in on that. Um, but when I was in university, that's when I found sort of organizational psychology. Unfortunately, I found it a little too late in my studies. So changing my major would have required me to, uh, to stay a whole lot longer than I was willing to do. So I graduated undergraduate with a degree in English and, and creative writing, the desire to sort of be that writer. Specifically, to write about human behavior, social science, org psychology, et cetera. Um, so I went on, I did what you do in that situation. I went on to graduate school for, for that. It was still working, but going part-time to a master's program and then eventually kind of accidentally started into a doctorate that led to accidentally becoming a business school professor for like 10 years. Again, none of that was the plan. The plan was to be a writer. Um, but it was really helpful not only to to test the application of material, to do like in an MBA program or executive ed work, you get to really sort of see how models and, and evidence-based research can fit into the practicality of what leaders need and what have you. So I got kind of, that was my learning laboratory for, for all of that and also started writing. So my first book came out in 2013. Um, as a speaker, you know, when you've released that first book, that leads to invitations to speak, but I was still teaching right up until uh, 2016 was when I started to scale it down. 2020 was when I left the university entirely. Um, so I didn't really consider myself, like if you asked me what I did until basically COVID, I would tell you I was a business school professor until only about two years ago, I flipped and said, you know, I'm a writer and a professional speaker, right? Um, so it's one of those, I, you know, I feel like the speaking side is going really, really well. I still got this, this John Sinai guy. I'm trying to, to <laughs> leapfrog, uh, <laughs> But it was something that, you know, it was like a, it was almost an exponential curve, right? A lot of prep work, a lot of writing. I wrote four books before I was really all that in demand in the speaking circuit. I taught for 10 years before um, any of that. And then, and then it all just kind of clicked together, partly because some of my research was on teams, especially in a remote and hybrid environment. And that was what the world suddenly needed all of the time. And then partly because the realization for me during COVID was just how, even if we get back to in-person this team's phenomenon isn't going away. I think COVID for me was the understanding that the world really does run on teams. I already knew that intellectually, but also that people's experience of work, whether or not they're engaged, whether or not they enjoy the work that they're doing, and then by downstream effect, whether or not they, whether or not they have enough energy to engage with friends and family or whether or not they're working in a toxic environment that just drains them and they go home and they sit and drink and watch Netflix, right? All of that is actually determined by the people that you're working with. In other words, that team. So I think teams are are central to our life. And it's been that sort of through line throughout all of my work, but something I didn't realize really emotionally or expansively uh, until about two or three years ago. So, I mean, I think that the, the, the idea around teams really comes down to relationships and community. Teams is what we do at work, but I mean, at home you have relationships in your community, you have a community. And it's just, it's funny when Eric talks to me about the stuff, I'm like, it's exactly what Esther Perel talks about inside relationships. And it's almost like a, and it's, a, it's an extrapolation of just human connection and you're doing it in the organizational stance. Were all your books about teams? Or like, tell us a little bit about your four books and, and, and how they progressed to this. I mean, they, they weren't, but they were, right? So this was my realization a couple of years ago. So I had a bit of intellectual ADHD when I was younger. And so the first book was about creativity and innovation. The second book was sort of a future of work and trends um, book. The third was about social networks and networking. And you might think, okay, those are three very different topics. What the heck do they all have in common? But it is that teams, you might call it communities, networks, et cetera, people and relationships, right? So for example, the first book was about creativity and innovation, but the most highlighted sentence in that entire book is creativity is a team sport. Like if you go to Kindle and you say, what do people highlight? It's that single sentence, creativity is a team sport. Um, even the future of workbook talked a lot about organizations needing to, to restructure themselves around project teams and what have you. And, 
And then even the networks book, a lot of the early part of that book is seen as a career advice book. How do you reach out to weak ties and what have you? But the whole second half of that book is the fact that you work in a network, in a community, and you need to sort of understand that network of people that you're in in order to be effective in your your career. So it's always sort of been the through line, but it wasn't until looking backwards. What's that, what's that Kierkegaard line about life, right? It's kind of the same thing with your body of work. You just sort of pursue your interests. And then when you look backwards, you start to see the through lines through it all. Uh, I was going to ask you about that because uh, with these being diverse topics with a through line, were they mainly fueled by your curiosity versus the trends that you were seeing in the marketplace? Or was there some connection between the two anyway? Uh, well, I mean, there there always has to be a little bit of a demand in the marketplace or you can't sell it to a publisher, right? Um, although funny story, my third book about networks and social networking was uh, entirely driven by this is the book I want to write. And the publisher was like, well, uh, we don't think it'll do that well. I was like, but this is what I'm going to write. And they're like, okay, well, you've done two good books for us. So here's a contract, right? Like, And, and sure enough, it didn't do that well. It, it, actually, it actually did. It did okay. Yeah. It's actually, it's weird. Because of the first couple chapters in that book, which are about sort of your personal career, your personal network, et cetera, that's the book more than any other book I still get emails from people about, about, hey, I read this and I applied this and it was really helpful, what have you. What it doesn't turn into is any professional work, right? Very few companies want to hire someone to come in and teach their people how to network better so they can go find better jobs at a different company. That very rarely happens, right? Um, The only time I ever did any work in that regard was... If you had, let's say, a MISC, we could have actually, actually one of our buddies we met there basically did this talk. Uh, but a lot of times you go to a big conference and you want to have at least one speaker go, here's how to use the next three days to expand your network and what have you. But that was about it. That was very, very limited, right? So most of it was that kind of pursuing intellectual interest and what have you. And I'm very, very blessed in the sense that there was always a thirst for that. Now, the one exception of that was the book before Best Team Ever, Leading From Anywhere, was 100% a response to the market. I actually released a project with Audible just before the pandemic on on purpose and meaning and how to inject more purpose and meaning into work and what leaders can do and what have you. And then the world basically ended and no one cared, right? Everyone was like, forget purpose, let's just try and stay alive and let's just try and keep the business operational. And what we need now is this other thing. And since I had something that would be useful to that market, we decided to go for it. And that became the book leading from anywhere. So tell us a a little bit about the book. Uh, How is it done? When did it come out? Uh, Give us a structure of it and and how you actually broke it down. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the book launched in in May, uh, May 30th, essentially June 1st. And when I look at royalty statements, what have you, you know, the first day sales are are, are an entire month of sales. Um, we came, came out in May and the, the response has been been really, really good. I, I think there is a hunger. You know, Eric, you were asking about the market. Um, this was partly driven by market demand and partly driven by my own passions. I, I think where we are now is I, I feel like what the market needed was a teams for the post-pandemic world, right? There's some great books on teams and, and team culture out there before. You've got, you know, Lencioni's famous book, Five Dysfunctions of a Team. I I like to accentuate the positive. So let's talk about the functions instead of dysfunctions. Um, You've got the culture code by Daniel Coyle, et cetera. But all of them assume an in-person 100% of the time team. And we don't live in that world anymore, right? And and we're not not going, even even your Goldman Sachs companies that are calling everybody back to the office, you're still going to be collaborating with people in other offices, collaborating across the globe, right? So you're still going to need this virtual or, or what I call now sort of location agnostic teams manual. And so that's what we really sought to make best team ever. And so it's had that response, which has been really good. It's really great to have, you know, this is not a remote workbook. I have one of those. This is a, doesn't matter what your situation is, the exercises, the models, the research that's in here will be useful to the team that you're leading. When you look at, um, obviously, so we had this these extremes kind of happening. We were all in uh, in the office, COVID happens, we all go remote. Uh, then we've had some companies go, okay, everyone has to be back full-time. Uh, we have had some companies who are trying to figure out the hybrid thing. We have some companies that are still pushing remote saying this is the future, like the guys are doing hybrid, that's going to be temporary. You're all going to come back to remote at some point. When you look at what you think the world is progressing to or evolving to, do you think that people end up finding sort of a happy medium in hybrid? Or do you think that 
this is a temporary thing and we go back to remote in the long run? I think, I mean, it, I'll give you the right now, which I have data for, and then I'll give you my prediction, which I have zero data for. But as John knows <laughs> that I never let the lack of data stand in the way from making a strong <laughs> opinion. <laughs> I'm kidding. I kid. Um, so right now the data is, is pretty clear that the people who are working in a hybrid environment are the most engaged, right? People who are working fully remote are still struggling with the loneliness and burnout and, and lack of boundaries between work and life that we were talking about, you know, during the, the pinnacle of the pandemic. People that are back at the office are really annoyed that they're back at the office for 40 hours a week, right? So the, the, when you look at engagement data and performance data, hybrid seems to be winning. That said, I actually don't think hybrid is going to win. And I don't think remote is going to win either. Terms are really important here. You might call what I'm about to say just another form of hybrid. But what I'm betting on is just a, a more flexible, primarily in-person work environment for most people, right? So I think when we look at pre-pandemic, there was about, it, I can look, I can give you data for North America. It's hard to kind of, we'll, we'll assume it, it applies to a lot of places. Although it's interesting, if you look at countries like Japan, high, remote never really happened during, you know, it happened for a very short window. And then since they managed to close their borders, they could do it much more safely. So they were in person a lot. Um, anyway, anyway, so before the pandemic, about 8% of the uh, North American workforce worked remotely 100% of the time. And I think we might post pandemic, let's say 2025, when the dust settles, as it were, that might get to 10 or 12%. But that's about it, right? I think what's much more likely is that we end up in an environment where we call it hybrid right now. But upwardly mobile people want to make themselves seen at the office much more often. I work with a lot of organizations that say, oh, yeah, you only have to be in the office two days a week, but senior leadership is there four to five. That means if you want to be seen, you're there three to four, right? So I think we're headed back to, to the office much more in much more organizations, despite what our, what, what our words, our, our strategies. So where, where I'm banking and where I'm trying to push organizations and leaders is, okay, that's okay. There are some benefits to an office as a collaboration tool. But can we at least just stop tracking when people are coming in, when they're leaving, what they're doing, et cetera? Like I encourage a lot of companies not to say we want two days right now or what have you and just look at core overlap time. Maybe it's one week a month. We want everyone in the office for that same week so we can sync up, do collaboration, build you know, camaraderie, what have you. Maybe it's you know, in, in highly urban areas, I think what works better is something more like a core hour strategy. Hey, we don't care when you're here, when you leave, but Monday through Thursday, can you be here from 10 to 2, right? So you miss, miss the rush hours and what have you. I think that's more where we're headed. It's just a more flexible work arrangement where we know we need to overlap with people on site some of the time, but we give you more autonomy all of the time. I, I feel like that's where we're headed. I wish I had data for that. That is based on my anecdotal conversations with a lot of different leaders. But I think that's where the data is going to take us as we start to zoom out and go all the way out to 2025, 6, 7, et cetera. And that really resonates for me, actually, David. I, I think what you're saying is really great. I like that that, that different variations of urban and non-urban and once a month. I think those are really great to play with. How much um, data or input do you take around? What technology is doing? How AI is going to be impacting this sort of world? Or is that not part of the equation at this stage for you? Uh, I, I give it. I give it some thinking, right? I, I think it doesn't it doesn't play too much into my rationale because I think the two biggest, um, the two biggest drivers of the prediction that, that I'm saying is, is laziness and the need for human connection, right? Which is the opposite of laziness. Laziness meaning we're going to just sort of naturally fall back to the rhythms we had before the pandemic, right? Um, you could call it inertia, you could call it whatever. You've got a lot of senior leaders who, you know, had a, 30 something, 35 year career before the pandemic. And so this blip of two or three years of a different working arrangement, is not the norm to them. Of course, you've got other much younger people for whom this has been their whole career experience, right? But guess who wins in a battle of that, right? So that's, so that's number one. The other is that, I mean, there, there are certain things that we don't have, this is where technology comes into play for me. There are certain things where tech, we don't have the technology to do yet. The research is 
pretty clear on this. In-person brainstorming, idea generation, et cetera, beats remote brainstorming every time, right? Now, that's an area where things like AI and other places could help uh, replace it. The single, John, you're probably the same way. Eric, you might be. The single most useful tool for AI for me right now is as a brainstorming buddy, right, to sort of help me generate a lot of different ideas or perspectives. I'll say, you know, here's a title for something. Give me 10 different variations and what have you which is what we're going for when we get people in person is that quantity that comes from, from a lot of it. Um, so th that could change. We're just, we're not there yet. Right. Like I played with the Oculus. I've hung around in the metaverse. It's not there yet. Doesn't okay. mean it won't be, yeah. but it's not there. Yet. Um, yeah. I, I wanted to come back to the book. So you envision this sort of hybrid world and is the book then a playbook for that? It is to say, this is how we do this, how we um, create the structures that allows us to operate effectively when our team is, is hybridly set up in this way. So, I mean, it, in a way, no, right? M my goal was to write a book that no matter what your working situation is, you feel like it was written to you. So we don't use the word hybrid pretty much anywhere in the book. If we do, we use it as an aside. Mm. You know, I, because I think about, so for example, my, um, my wife is an ER physician. You can't really do that remotely, Right. Uh, my best friend runs an auto mechanic shop. You can't really do that remotely, right? And my goal, you know, I, I wrote it obviously influenced by this world because I work in the knowledge work economy and most of my clients are in that economy. The past book was about leading from anywhere. It was about remote, et cetera. But the goal was to look at the language I was using and filter it through that, right? Would this be equally useful in a hospital? Would it be equally useful in a factory? Would it be equally useful? So that's the idea is to present a model of team culture and a series of actions you can take where you feel like it's written to you be, because it works in your scenario, whether you're remote or, or not. Right. So that was the goal. It doesn't, it's not an explicit hybrid book. We have that. It's called leading from anywhere. It's a great book. I like it. I like it a lot. Um, but that wasn't, that wasn't this book. The goal with this book was to be totally agnostic and let you read it in whatever your situation is and find something applicable. And so is there a core framework that emerges from the book? Yeah. Yeah. So when we look at the research, so there's about 30, 35 years of great research on team culture. And, and when we look at that research, every we're academics, we're funny people, man. We like to invent terms and we like to take existing things and then reinvent them as new terms um, so that we can do our TED Talk and get our publishing deal. Gen Z also loves that, by the way. Did you see? Yeah, um, oh yeah, I know, totally. Did you see Quiet Walking? <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, I love, I love, um, yeah, I mean, even quiet quitting. Quiet yeah. quitting is just disengagement. disengagement. We've had that term, yeah. right? But, like it's it's you, you have a crappy job. We made <laughs> movies about that, cartoon shows about that, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Anyway, anyway, when you look at all of the research on teams and team culture, what you find is you can kind of see there's three really strong areas of overlap between all of the different researchers. There's three what I call common elements of a great team culture, which are what I call common understanding, sometimes also called shared understanding psychological safety, and pro-social purpose, which is not just purpose, mission, knowing your why, it's also knowing who is served by that, which is, you know, you jokingly mentioned Gen Z. Uh, that's actually what they're looking for, right? Is tell me who is actually impacted. Don't give me a big thing about how we're disrupting uh, the industry and what have you. Tell me who specifically. So common understanding, psychological safety, and pro-social purpose. You'd be hard-pressed to find a high-performing team that doesn't have those three elements at play in the, in the culture of the team. Common understanding is that shared values and the same mission that they are, that they're moving towards. That's the first question. And the second question, not question, but that's what you did in Saudi. You spoke about who rather than why, which I thought was really yes. good. And, 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 and maybe expand a little bit on that because I thought it was such a great understanding because everybody's stuck on the why, right? You, you're moving it towards yeah. the who, yeah. Yeah, well, so I, that's more of a pro-social purpose side. So would you want me to take common understanding first? Yeah, yeah, go, go, go common understanding first. Give us a little bit of breakdown okay. there. Yeah. So, so common understanding is what you were talking about around shared values. It's, it's a combination of how much clarity I have in my role and, and what I can expect from the team. But it's also how much I understand the differences and diversity of the team, right? So there's shared values, but then there's also understanding those kind of differences, right? So I, we as a team have common understanding when we know what's expected of us we, and we trust team members to deliver on what's expected of them. But then we also know their differences. We know who that person who loves to jump on a phone call or a Zoom call and who the person who would rather type out a really long memo is. And it's okay that they're just playing to their strengths, right? We don't get frustrated because so-and-so always writes long emails. We just know that's how she likes to process information or, or what have you. 
right? So it's that clarity. I call it a mix of clarity and empathy, right? Do I have clarity of what's expected of me? And do I have empathy for my, my teammates? And in, in that, right, one of the ways you build empathy is through that sense of shared values. Where, where are the things we overlap, preferences we overlap, and then where's the respect for those differences? So, so that's the common understanding piece. Do you want me to hit the pro-social now? All right. So pro-social purpose, which is the third element, um, is really about that reframe, John, that we were, that we were talking about that most people, so there's two elements to this, right? Most people are, are, and teams are motivated by making a meaningful contribution toward work that benefits others. So I see that as meaning and impact as two different elements. Meaning is that contribution. Contribution is the core of meaning. Do I know that the work that I do actually matters or do I just have sort of a useless paper pusher job, Right. Um, and then impact is I'm judging that it matters based on who I see is impacted by my work. So this is what we talked about in, in Saudi. I think, you know, with respect to, to Mr. Cynic, I think we were overdue for a purpose conversation when he bust on the scene with start with why, but I think even he would agree that the best answer to why is a who, and that's why his later work talks about the just cause and, and this idea that we're working towards a positive impact on other people. Now, that's an individual motivation thing, but you also see it at a team-wide level. When people uh, hear stories or when people have an acknowledgement of how the team's work benefits other people, they're more likely to engage in what we call pro-social behaviors or sometimes called organizational citizenship behaviors. These are all fancy org psych words for teamwork. They're more likely to put we over me and to make the goals and the values of the team more important than, than what I want to get out of it. And so they operate as a team much better. Not only am I intrinsically motivated to do my work, I'm more motivated to help the other people on my team because I know we're doing it in the service of someone else. Mm. I think, David, for the sake of... Uh uh, being holistic here, let's just cover psychological safety as well. So we yeah. have all three. Yeah, no, all, all three elements, the, the triforce of team it's culture. A, if you're a Zelda nerd, uh, you know, there's gotta be somebody <laughs> in, in the audience that is a Zelda nerd. <clears throat> so psychological safety is in my opinion, probably the least prevalent one in a modern organization, right? We, we, we know we need to grow in a sense of empathy and what have you. We're not maybe good at it, but we're trying for it. We know we need to talk more about purpose beyond the bottom line. We might not be good at it, but we're trying for it. But very few people know how, just how important this sense of psychological safety is. And, and this is how well team members feel safe to express themselves, to take risks. Um, and, and there's a lot of things that we don't think of as risks that are risks. Speaking up because I disagree is a risk. Right? Sharing a crazy idea uh, that, that's outside of the box, that's a risk. I might get ridiculed for that. It, admitting a failure, admitting that I messed up in something is a risk because it might get, I might get taken advantage of and shoved down and thought of as a lower performer because I'm admitting that I learned the hard way on, on something, right? All of these are forms of interpersonal risk. And where a lot of teams go wrong, and this is why I say I think it's least prevalent, is we think that psychological safety is synonymous with trust, that we need to build a trusting team and that's true in a sense, but uh, psychological safety is a mix of trust and respect, which are two different sides of what happens when someone takes a risk, <clears throat> right? I have to trust you to take the risk of admitting I failed or to take the risk of sharing the crazy idea. How you respond after I take that risk determines whether or not I trust you in the future. If you shoot my idea down right away, that'll never work. We tried something similar to that before. If you make a joke at my expense because I'm admitting a failure, right? I don't trust you as much anymore. And as a team, I don't trust the team as much anymore. And so it's not just trust. It's, also, it's, this, it's this constant cycle of trust, interpersonal risk, and then respect felt from the team that keeps a team bonded and grows a sense of psychological safety or diminishes it over time. And I think what's interesting is you look at a lot of corporate failures recently, a lot of like, oh, we decided to go this way with the brand and there was a huge backlash or the CEO said this and it was stupid and what have you. A lot of it actually stems from a lack of psychological safety because what you have are people underneath that person that makes the mistake who aren't willing to go, hey, maybe we shouldn't do that. Maybe that's, maybe that's a bad idea, right? They don't, they don't have enough trust or their past ideas haven't been respected enough that they no longer feel safe to express that. You know, so we think about this, you know, John, you, you mentioned it earlier in the context of sort of diversity, right? This is the key missing piece, I think, in the conversation of diversity. It's great to get more uh, different ideas, different perspectives and what have you, like we were talking about at the top. But if you don't also build a sense of psychological safety, then people aren't going to feel safe to express all those different ideas. And we might as well have a monoculture. We might as well not have diversity. And you see this in the research too. Diverse teams with psychological safety outperform just about any other form of team. 
But diverse teams without psychological safety are worse than homogenous teams, than teams that think alike. I recently listened to episode two, season seven of IRL podcast, and this one is called The Humans in the Machine. And I got to tell you, it was such an eye opener because they were interviewing these young adults in Kenya that were actually the people inputting the information required for these large language models and having to deal with some hectic things on the internet. And they were showing that these big companies like Meta weren't really compensating these people for this incredibly difficult work. I mean, the psychological turmoil they must be going through must be really, really tough. I mean, it gave me such a new appreciation for what they're going through and also to hold them more accountable as these big organizations make incredible profits without sharing it in a fair way. So search for Mozilla IRL in your podcast player or visit irlpodcast.org. We'll also include a link in the show notes for this pod. And many thanks for IRL for their support. So I just, I have a burning question. So um, yeah. I, I want to get it out. Um, I saw a, a tweet from Adam Grant earlier today. And mm. I don't know when, when it was posted, but I'm going to read it to you because I'd like to hear your riff on, on this. So he said, don't confuse psychological safety with safe spaces. Safe spaces treat people as fragile and dissenting ideas as threats. Psychologically safe environments build the capacity to embrace and learn from respectful disagreement. Exposure to diverging views is fuel for growth. Yeah. Wow. And maybe Adam Maybe Adam just re- finally got around to reading the copy that I sent him. Uh, no, that's great. <laughs> no, I mean... But- there, we, there we go. <laughs> both, of, both of us are drawing from the same source here, right? Which is the, the research and the work of Amy Edmondson. And, and Amy is the first person I remember saying that exact phrase. Like, this is not about safe spaces. In a safe space, you're never going to hear anything that would make you uncomfortable. In a psychologically safe space you are going to hear things that make you uncomfortable and you're going to develop the empathy to respect them and understand them and and create that environment where that happens, right? And so you're going to grow um, as a result. It's not about never hearing differing opinions. It's about feeling safe to personally express your differing opinion and know that you're not going to get attacked or belittled for it. Yeah, so he he and I are in, in pretty much... Uh, total agreement on that. I, I would, the one exception I would say is his last sentence where he says it's fuel for growth, et cetera. That's true. It's fuel for the growth of the team. I, I think again, I, man, maybe this is my own bias towards looking at everything through the lens of teams, but it is possible to feel a sense of psychological safety to one individual. But what matters more is that you feel it for the whole team. In other words, there may be people who are, you feel less safe around than others, but it, at, on the whole, in the net net, if you're in a group, if you're in a meeting with your team or your family or your community, what have you, you still feel safe to be your whole self because you know at least one or two people there have your back and are going to help you feel respected. That's where it starts. I was speaking to a leader not too long ago and she said, so they introduced the idea of psychological safety to their team. And then once they got into it, you know, when, when she had to sit them down and give them some feedback on something they might not be doing as good in, uh, they were taught would be, no, no, you can't do this because you're breaking down my psychological <laughs> safety. You're, you're, you're affecting my psychological safety. <laughs> it became this very convenient excuse. As I said, no, we'll, we'll, we need to revisit. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, to, to, me, to me, that sounds like people taking advantage of, of the rule. I, I, will, I will say, I will say, and this is an area where hybrid makes things harder and where remote makes things harder, is that it doesn't mean you're never going to give constructive criticism to people. But as a leader... You want to make sure that you're giving what, what I sometimes call fair feedback. And, and that's not the compliment sandwich or any of these other ridiculous tools. But it is paying attention to the percentage of time you spend praising someone versus giving them constructive feedback and making sure it's in line with how they're actually doing. In other words, if somebody is performing 90% rock star and in only 10% of their responsibilities, they're underperforming then I hope you spend closer to 90% of the time praising them. And then they'll take, they'll listen harder when you give them that 10% of constructive criticism because they know you have their back. And, and unfortunately, what happens in an in-person environment, it's easier to maintain that because you see them. You walk down the hall, hey, that's, that was so great. Let me give you a high five. Hey, I just read your report. It's awesome. All those little moments that happen that you have to be much more deliberate about now if you're not seeing them on a regular basis. So, so there is a kernel of truth to, to that example. But, um, but yeah, 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 yeah. 
John, I want to make sure you get in the service. Can, of can, I, can I ask a question? I want to hang make on, sure on, you get a word in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for having me on your podcast, Eric. It's uh, wonderful to be yeah, here. Yeah, no, it's expensive with David and Eric. Thank you. John, Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Hi, my name's John Sarnay. Uh, I come here once in a while. Welcome, Thank John. You. Thank Welcome, you. John. David, you yeah. know, um, as I'm listening to you, I, I, and maybe this is very personal, but it seems incredibly difficult to not bring your baggage from home not bring your trauma from the past, working with people eight hours a day, the trigger aspects, the the stories behind the scenes that you share with your close comrade about the other people in the team. I find it, I find it exhausting to manage those teams and, and, and constantly be speaking about what's making you feel good and what do you feel great and keeping all the cats together and herding them and, and, and I guess what I've done in my personal life is built a life that doesn't have that necessity. I mean, I've, I used to have restaurants in my 20s. I had hundreds of staff members. I've worked in corporate teams. I've been in strategy sessions. And I can see the infighting between the CEOs and whoever doesn't like each other. It just seems incredibly exhausting. So my, my question is twofold. One, personal development, personal trauma healing, personal uh, uh, ev- evolution to come into a team that's going to need this three sort of aspects that you have, how much responsibility is required on individuals to show up in brand new ways and then to be able to deal with whatever is required in the team space? Because, you know, people are having a tough time. There's an, it's an emotional time out there. There's so much uncertainty. And, and in times of panic, people are not themselves. You know, they, they really are in a heightened state of, of, oh my God, is my job going? What's AI going to do to me? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So talk to me about personal development around that and the responsibility people have for that. And also the fact that we are in such uncertain times, keeping a team together, I imagine must be harder than ever before. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, I would say, especially from a leadership standpoint, it's huge, right? Because you're going to set the tone. You know, I'm I'm reminded of... uh, in the, in the book, we talk about Alan Mulally, who is the turnaround of Ford Motor Company in the 2000s. And in, in my opinion, probably the greatest living CEO. And I made the mistake of saying that, by the way, last week on stage at a, at a bank, at a leadership conference for a bank, and the CEO of the bank was like down front. As soon as I said it, I was like, oops, I totally just called someone else the greatest living CEO <laughs> in front of a CEO. Um, thankfully, he agreed with me. Um, but a- Alan was charged with taking over a very toxic culture in in Detroit as Ford is going through all of this uncertainty. The stock price is crumbling. They're losing market share and what have you. And you do. You have to do the personal work to come in and be steady for the rest of the team. And, and to some extent, you have to do the personal work because leaders model the way, right? Le- leaders model the way in buildings, for example, psychological safety, right? So Alan had to, and some of this is how he was born and how he grew up, but some of it is the work that he had to do, had to have the inner fortitude to model kind, loving, compassion, even as people are toxic with each other and taking advantage of failures. I'm reminded of like, he tells me the story one time in the interview, and it didn't make it in the book, and now I wish it had. Um, Just now, I wish it had, because I'm telling it here. But he tells a story about one of their rules for building psychological safety on the senior leadership team is never a joke at someone else's expense because it's not actually funny to that person and it diminishes psychological safety. Now, this is hard. I would have to work personally on this a ton, right? I come from the Northeast of the United States. My love language is snark, right? Like snark (laughs) and sarcasm. That's what New Yorkers, (laughs) Philadelphians, Bostons, that's what we're all known for, right? So this would be a ton of personal work I would have to do. Um, but, But he says, never joke at someone else. And there was a member of his team, of the executive team, who was just constantly that way. I don't know if they were from the Northeast or not. I probably should have asked. You know, but he confronted him multiple times and had to do it peaceably, had to say, you know, th- this is unacceptable behavior. You, you can't continue to act like that. And he told me the story, but the executive essentially uh, eventually arrived at him and said, you know, I don't, I don't think I can. And Alan had to say, okay, that's okay. You know, Eric, you can't make that change. That's okay. And of course he goes back, you mean I can, it's okay. I can keep acting this way. No, you can't be a member of our senior leadership team, but it's okay. I'll help you find a new job. I'll support you. Mm. I'll still love you, right? But if you don't want to make this change, you can't be a leader in this organization anymore. And to think about the amount of personal peace, for lack of a better term, you have to have to be able to do that is huge. Yeah. 
huge because it almost sounds like you need to be a sage to be a leader. Like you have to be at such a high level of consciousness and not to be triggered in those times of uncertainty, even though you yourself as a leader have no clue what the future looks like. You've got to keep a ship together, people in a state of harmony. I mean, that is a lot of work for a leader. Hey, I mean, that's, I, I would imagine more than ever before. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say, you know, we just, we just scared a whole bunch of people off of leadership. Right. So we, we might, we, I might say you have to be at a higher Right, not a, not a super, but like whatever the team is at, mm. you might have to be at a slightly higher, mm. because you do in in the midst of uncertainty, people look for certainty, and mm. if you are that steady ship, if you are that lighthouse, etc., then then that's going to be what they're attracted to, and then and then they can help them. Now, unfortunately, history is full of people who were not very steady, who were not very positive, who were straight up evil. Uh, and people yeah. look to them because they had the appearance of, of steadfastness, yeah. right? And so you can just as easily kind of take advantage of that too. So yeah, we, we need you. We need you to kind of do that work because we need in those moments of uncertainty to look to, to hire folks. I want to I tell you, flip it though, because we were talking about personal affecting work. The other reason I think this discussion around teams and teams at work is so important is it goes the other way too. If you're a part of a toxic team, it, it goes the other way. I I told you earlier, my wife is a is an ER physician, so our experience of COVID was a little was a lot a bit different uh, than most people's. Right? We weren't just two you know, knowledge workers sitting at home on our laptops. We had a whole we had a whole disinfection ritual. Right? Mom mom would come home and the boys would be like, "How come I can't talk to mom?" Right? When she comes home from work, it's because she pulling the one car that drove to the hospital and back, and no one else got in that car. Right? Into the garage. There's a, place for dirty clothes and Lysol wipes and all of that sort of then going straight to the shower to kind of disinfect with new different soaps that we didn't know existed and what have you. And then and only then after like the whole disinfection ritual is over, can she migrate over and, and interact with the rest of us? Now I say all of that and that sounds really elaborate. We all got COVID anyway, and we got it pretty quick into the pandemic and I've lost count of it. I've, I can tell you I've had COVID more times than I've had uh, booster shots. I can tell you that. Um, wow. Because try as you might, it's going to infect you. If you've got a toxic work environment, you could do whatever ritual you want to de-stress from that. You can have whatever it is, you know, it, it might be a positive ritual, affirmations, meditation, what have you. It might be that you stop at the bar first before going home. It might be a negative ritual. You could try whatever ritual you want. You're going to drag that crap home with you to your family, to your friends, et cetera. And that's another reason why building these positive teams that have a great team culture of those three elements is so important, is that it affects far more than just your ability to work. Well said. I didn't think about it yeah. like that. You're yeah. right. Yeah. And, and, you know, you spend so much of your time in that team. And it's it's a pity because being part of a high-performing, cohesive team is such a privilege. It's such an amazing thing. You get such a sense of, well, belonging is one, but also like just purpose and like um, feeling like you're driving towards something meaningful. And then like, you, you know, you could have that team experience, but then for so many people, unfortunately, uh, they go through what you just spoke about. And unfortunately it taints mm -hmm. everything. Um, you can't just keep it at work. And that's a real pity. And like, and, and ultimately there are just a couple of things we need to start getting right, you know, but in, in my experience, at least, um, this outline that you've given us, even today, like psychological safety feels to me like a thing that everyone mm -hmm. knows about by now. But when I get into workshops and we talk about this, I find very, very few yeah. people do. And so there's still such a lot of training and education that needs to happen around what does it look like to be in a good team? Because I find that most people in a team, they have a blueprint of what it means to be a good team, but that has been built by previous right. experiences. And those previous experiences were either bad or mediocre or maybe sometimes okay. But we get together as a team and we all have a different blueprint instead of having one yeah. blueprint the way that you've outlined yeah. it now. And, and I think, I, I think the, the big addition onto that is that we don't, we have the blueprint and it might overlap with other people's blueprints, which is great, but then we have behaviors and we don't recognize how important those are, right? So to go back to psych safety for a second, yeah, there's, there's very few folks in our space uh, that disagree that psychological safety is, you basically can, it's kind of like gravity at this point. Like, you know, what I think a lot of people mm. don't get is, is that they're, and this is why I say it's trust and respect, is that their behaviors, when they're listening to someone else be vulnerable, 
are what make the huge difference, right? So it's not enough to say, yeah, we need to build psychological safety. You can trust. This is a place of trust. This is above. No. Are you actually modeling out active listening? Are you asking follow-up questions? Are you, are you ceasing the jokes at other people's expense? Have you remembered to make eye contact with people, right? Instead of staring at your phone when they're sharing some vulnerability to them. It's those sort of behaviors. Same thing around purpose, right? Like John, I don't know if you remember this from, from the talk that you were at of mine in, in Saudi, but the, the big one behavior I was really hoping they'd take home is that we've had a decade plus of uh, knowledge about how gratitude sharing can be a huge thing for your personal life and for teams. But there's a behavior that's missing from a lot of it, which is that it's not enough to just say, thank you so much for this, but you also want to share the impact it had on you. Thank you so much for doing this for me because it empowered me to do this, because it affected me mm. in this way. And those are behavioral things, right? They're, so the model and having that shared model is important. That's why we draw the triangle in the book and all that sort of thing. But the behaviors are what matter more. And keeping the nice thing about this is if you got a leader that's, that's bought into this, then the leader can hold people accountable to behaviors, kind of like the Alan Mulally story that I, that I told you. Is It's a whole lot easier to hold people accountable to certain behaviors than it is to just say everybody needs to trust each other, right? Yeah, look, those behaviors are, for me, so easy until I'm triggered. Mm. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, those behaviors, I become six years old and I'm throwing my toys out the cot and I'm like, what the hell happened? <laughs> like, why am I acting out like this, you know? And, and, and I think, I think that's why it's so difficult is because a lot of us are being triggered by very deep, deep seated yeah. emotional stuff at the moment, you know, and, uh, to want to bring your best self to work and, and to be able to have that ambassadorial, like, you know, that very elegant approach on a consistent basis is a very difficult process. And for leaders to herd it all together is, so I think books like yours really do help. Um, but I also think people have to take on a, a much deeper responsibility of their own uh, skill sets and showing up into that team with the right behaviors, as you've just mentioned, you know, and thank yeah. you for that, yeah. because I'm very grateful for people, but the impact that, for example, I said mm. this to you off air, because the impact you've had on me is explaining to me stuff that I thought I'd made my decision on already. And you kind of like showed me a new way. And so thank you for just giving me an opportunity to think about the world in a brand new way, in a fresh new way. Oh, so you're too kind. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great example of thank you so much for this because it allowed me to do that. And, and, and if you're listening to this and you're wondering like, where do I get started? That, right? And then and then take John's mm. advice because John, what we were just talking about, about you in stressful moments, et cetera, go mm. back to acting like a toddler mm. or what have you. Mm. That's mm. that inner work that you were talking about, right? Mm. That, that we all can be better coworkers um, if we engage in, right? But uh, I, I, start small, right? Yeah. Let's just start on on gratitude. Let's start on modeling yeah. respectful behavior yeah. when people are being vulnerable, but it's going to lead you to that place anyway. So, you know, I don't know. Do, you, do we call that an adaptability quotient, John? Is that AQ? Is that working on your AQ? Is that what you mean? No, no. All right. I'm just trying to <laughs> trying to give your, your work a plug uh, thank here. Thank you. No, no, no. no. Just trying <laughs> to prove that I follow Look, you on Instagram. Yeah, thank you. No, my, my thing's AQ squared, which is awareness and adaptability. And in order uh, to be aware, you need to have a calm heart and a clear mind. In other words, mm -hmm. you can't be triggered. Yeah. And if you are triggered, you can't be aware, which means you can't be adaptable. Which So actually, the, the, the whole point of unlearning to relearn to be adaptable requires a very calm state that you're yeah. coming in at. You know what I mean? And most people are not calm, which means they're not adaptable. So yeah. it's very much exactly the same as I want to show up in a team at the best state of who I am in the most calm state of who I am, which actually gives me access to the biggest level of creativity that I have available to me. But being yeah. triggered shuts down creativity. It shuts yeah. down collaboration. It shuts down all those mm. things. So, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I, I think they're very, very linked, you know, that personal development coming into a team, you know, you've got to bring your best self. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure. Mm. So David, where can people find you? Uh, tell us about the book, where it can be bought. Uh, tell us about your podcast, your YouTube channel, all those things. Tell us everything. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, the, the book can be found at any great retailer. Uh, if they don't have it, then they're not a great retailer. So try a different one. Yes. yes. Uh, <laughs> no. In terms of finding me, it's, it's really easy. In addition to, you know, show notes for this episode and what have you. Uh, David Burkus, B-U-R-K-U-S, is a really weird last name. There are two of us uh, that I've ever found that have any sort of internet presence. Wow. 
Okay. The other is a Hungarian filmmaker. His stuff's pretty good, but it's going to be pretty obvious it's not me. Um, so if you just want to search <laughs> David Burgess into Google, you'll find us on on all of the socials. My probably favorite place to interact with people right now is either is either LinkedIn or we put out every week, we put out uh, about an eight to 10 minute leadership training on YouTube that also gets syndicated as a podcast, as John was talking about, and an article. So whichever format you like, it's there. Um, and yeah, because we're in so many places, the easiest thing to do is just tell you, type David Briggs into Google and you'll either find me or you'll find him. Mm. In either case, you'll be entertained, to be honest with you. It is very entertaining. Your stuff's right to the point. Uh, I'm, I'm, I subscribe to your newsletter. I really enjoy it when I read it. Uh, very clear and to the point. So well done, David. You've been a you've been a great, uh, uh, a delightful surprise as a friend in my <laughs> life, and uh, I look forward to the friendship growing as I start to spend more time in the states. Oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to when you're getting when you're getting back over here. We've we've yet to expose you to very U.S. things like really decent barbecue and what have you. So I've got a whole laundry <laughs> list of things on when you get here. <laughs> yes, looking forward to it. Looking forward. To it. <laughs> Uh, listen, David, from my side before John uh, counts us out, uh, thank you as well for jumping on the pod today. It was great connecting to you. It was great listening to you share your insights, your wisdom, your research on what you've rightly said is becoming increasingly important for us to figure out how do we do our best work together. And uh, so it, it's, been, it's been very meaningful to me. And I think personally, actually, that's what I'm taking out the most is uh, saying thank you and sharing the impact with it. So thank you for that. And John, you can, uh, sorry, David, any, any closing remarks you want to leave our audience with? No, I just, thank you so much for having me. Right. I mean, in addition to sharing me with your audience, which comes from a whole place of trust, I, I'm really looking forward to the impact this has down the road in terms of future conversations and what have you. And, and that all started with you all in the invite. So thank you so much for that because that's the impact it'll have that conversation that we're going to keep going, hopefully, because this is not an issue that's going to go away anytime soon. So let's keep talking about it and acting on it. Oh, no. No, I think it's getting even more complex. Absolutely. So, everybody, thank you so much for joining us on this week's Expansive. Don't forget David Burkus. If you Google him, uh, you can find all his books. Uh, he makes a lot of content. Uh, all of our teams and leadership always has a unique take on it, very clear in the way he talks about it. Um, do check out his book, Best Team Ever. Um, which I thought was such a great title. I remember when it launched on social media, so very much in tune with what's going on. If this podcast has helped you, please do share it with somebody that you think could benefit from it. And if you are feeling inspired, please uh, move over to the Apple podcast and give us a five-star rating. And also make sure that you live an expansive week ahead until we join you again. Until then, ciao.